Good afternoon. Thank you for tuning in, joining us for the weekly discussion on the Evangel Life broadcast. So I'm here with Dan, and we're going to talk about Israel and some of what's going on and how the what the Christian response is supposed to be. And I think this is a huge topic, but I'm going to read a question that came in. It says, thank you, Asi and Dan, for all, their, all the teaching on Israel and the Jews. I understand more fully God's purpose for the ethnic Jews and the church, spiritual Israel. One thing that I am still unsure of is how God is preserving this nation of Israel for the Jews even today. I hear many... Uh, Protestant radio preachers say that if you fight against Israel, you are fighting against God. Is God on the side of the IDF? So Andrew tells me that he's put together a montage of similar themed um, content. Dan and I haven't seen this yet, but you've put together some clips that are addressing how evangelicals should be responding to the Israel crisis. Let's watch it now. There is a one-state solution, Israel today, Israel tomorrow, Israel forever. We should sink any Iranian naval boats that threaten international shipping. If you don't really fully understand what I've just said, let me say it to you in plain Texas speech. America should roll up its sleeve and knock the living daylights out of Tehran for what they have done to Israel. And there is coming a day, according to Matthew 25, when God is going to clean the clock of every anti-Semitic nation. Israel is America's only true friend in the Middle East. Israel is the apple of God's eye. Israel is unique to God. First Chronicles 17 says, For you, God Almighty, have made your people Israel your very own people forever. God tells Moses to inform the Jewish people, you shall be a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation. There is no other nation to whom God has ever made those words. The Jewish people are chosen, they are cherished, they are the apple of God's eye, they are a people of covenant, and God has never broken that covenant with the Jewish people. Never. What you do to Israel, America, God will do to us. The day we stop blessing Israel will be the day God stops blessing the United States of America. The Bible records, I, God, have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there forever. King David says in Psalms 132, The Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. Simple phrase, God lives in Jerusalem. Habitation, he lives there. When Messiah comes, he's not coming to Washington. He's not coming to Berlin. He's not coming to the United Nations. He's going straight to the city of Jerusalem, put his foot on the Mount of Olives, and establish the eternal kingdom of peace. In the words of, of Isaiah, for Zion's sake, 
I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not remain quiet. We must stand together, Jews and Christians, in our holy mission for the truth. Today, dear friends, is a day of action. For tomorrow, our children and grandchildren will ask, how did you stand with Israel in her hour of need? Our war against Hamas is a test for all of humanity. It is a struggle between the axis of evil of Iran, Hezbollah, and Hamas, and the axis of freedom and progress. We are the people of the light. They are the people of darkness, and light shall triumph over darkness. As a prime minister, I'm responsible for guaranteeing the future of this country, and now my role is to lead all Israelis, the state of Israel and the people of Israel to an overpowering victory. It is now a time to come together for one purpose, to storm ahead to achieve victory. In joint with joint forces and a profound belief in our justness, a profound belief in the eternity of the Jewish people, we shall realize the prophecy of Isaiah. There will no longer be stealing at your borders and your gates will be of glory. Together, we will fight. Together we will win. Mm. Wow. That's some powerful words. Powerful topics. There's a lot that's being said there. And I guess right off the bat, I love the church's passionate love for the Jewish people. I love that. I love that Hagee has for decades coalesced a consensus, which is rare among evangelicals, but he has coalesced a consensus of support in the hearts of God's people for Israel and the Jewish people. In that sense, I, I find common ground. His theology, I find extremely disturbing. And the implications of it, I think, are, are potentially dangerous. So this gets back to the question. <laughs> I guess, should we, should we circle back to the question that, that was asked here? Let me just read that, if, if it's all right. Let me just read that question one more time. They said, um, I understand more fully God's purpose for ethnic Jews and the church as spiritual Israel. One thing I am still unsure of is how God is preserving this nation of Israel for the Jews even today. I hear many Protestant radio preachers say that if you fight against Israel, you are fighting against God. Is God on the side of the IDF? Oh, this is complicated stuff. <laughs> so we would say that in the prophetic plan of God, in the overarching prophetic plan of God, God is who allows rulers and states to rise or fall. And God has a transcendent purpose behind all of those actions. And we believe that God has a specific purpose prophetic salvific purpose behind the rebirth of Israel as a nation. It's not necessarily as simple as saying, is God therefore behind the IDF? We would say, is God's purpose advancing through these struggles? Yes, we believe it is. His inexorable purpose is advancing through these struggles. But we believe that you have to understand the difference between God using something almost 
um, in spite of itself versus God truly expressing himself or his will in, in a people. We believe that the church reborn, born again, Jews and Gentiles as Christians represent God's people upon the earth in that purest sense. But we nonetheless see that God has had a calling on the Jewish people and his love for, for them and his purpose for the end time revival uh, is a big part of why he has allowed and even his, the angelic host have blessed the rebirth of Israel and its protection and continuance into this day. Yeah, I think that this whole topic requires us to zoom out a little bit as you're doing here and just say, okay, is there a harmonious way to understand the orders of the powers that be in the world and a personal God who personally intervenes in the affairs that are taking place in, in this world. Amen. And, and what are the differences between the two? And I think a question that strikes me sometimes as helpful is, who created the devil? Mm. You know, and, well, we have to say that God created him. Mm. Um, is God on his side? We would all say no. Does God use him? To accomplish yes. his will. Yes. Yes, but we I, I don't know a Christian who wouldn't put a caveat on that and say, well, sort of. I mean, yes, but in a different way. Does, does God accomplish his will through the devil in the same way that he accomplished his will through Jesus or, um, you know, whoever, his people in, in various forms? So th there's a really broad scale there between ways in which God accomplishes His will or uses entities, powers that be. Um, we often discuss the word Elohim because it appears so many times in the Bible. It's, it's the word that would be translated as God or gods. Elohim is, is plural in the Hebrew. Um, and it's used to refer to the one true God of Israel, but it's also used to refer to Satan. Right. It's used to refer to the gods of the nations, the demons. It's used to refer to angels, whether positive or negative. To um, Moses. It, even to people, to Moses, for example. Um, God tells Aaron, you know, or Moses, you shall be as Elohim to, to Aaron. Mm -hmm. So even people with that, that operate in some kind of supernatural capacity, uh, bear some kind of power that has been invested in them by God. Mm -hmm. So I think we have to understand that when we get into these uh, sticky questions of nation against nation and, and rulers, who sets up rulers, it, it says in Daniel that, that God sets up kings and deposes kings. Mm -hmm. There's a way in which he does that. But is he doing it personally? You know, or even in, here, here's the one that gets a little closer to home for the church, um, in Romans 13, right. when it says that, um, Paul says there that, that speaking of the, the ruler who bears the sword, he says that God has ordained him. Right. But has God ordained him in the same way that we might ordain an elder in the church or that, you know, the apostles in the Bible were, were ordained? Right. Was, uh, he's writing to the Roman church there, and as I understand it, it was during the reign of Nero. Right. So it was Paul really writing to the Christians in Rome, telling them that God has handpicked Nero because he's his, he's his man. He's no. his candidate to do his will on the earth. You know, right. they, 
you, you have to believe that in that context, he's writing to the Romans in a sense to make sure that they maintain proper respect right. for a power that they might otherwise be inclined to categorically disrespect right. and refuse and, and disobey, even maybe for the wrong reasons. Yeah. So I'm just saying, I think we have to, to parse these things when we get into, is God on the side of the IDF? Um, let's turn that around a little bit. Is God on the side of Hamas? No. See, we're, we're quick to answer that. Any of us would be. Yeah. Well, that are Christians. Right. We're quick to say no to that. But is God on the side of the IDF? That becomes a little more one of those, well, it depends. Right. It depends on, on how you mean that. Was God more on David's side than he was on, on the side of Goliath? Well, it, it obviously, may, yes. Yeah. It, may be more, it may be helpful to even ask it in a different way and say, is justice on the side of the IDF? Yes. And that would be an easier question to answer. Yeah. And say yes. Yeah. And we could even then ask, is providence, is God's providential plan on the side of the IDF? Again, I think I could say yes. But even then, the yes has to be a little bit qualified. Yeah, yeah. You know, because yeah. are we going to endorse anything that the IDF right. does? Because or on the what, IDF. Or on what scale or whatever. Right. We just, we love, as me included, human beings, we love oversimplifications. Yeah. We like to pick the good guys. We want to know it's if it's, you know, it used to be years ago, it was cowboys and Indians. And right. you knew the cowboys were the good guys and the Indians were the good guys. Now that's kind of turned around. You know the Indians are the good guys. Yeah. And the cowboys are the bad guys. But, but we want these oversimplified black and white things. And there are truths that we've got to be conscious of. Uh, in, there's a difference between a David and a Nebuchadnezzar. Sure. You know, but yeah. the Bible refers to, uh, I think it's in Isaiah where he refers to Assyria. Yeah. God refers to Assyria as my war club. Right. Like Assyria is accomplishing his purpose. He refers to Cyrus, my servant. Right. Now we can see positive things that Cy Cyrus did, but Assyria... Is the Lord's war club to wipe out Israel? But in what way? Yeah. Is God behind Assyria? Is God endorsing everything that Assyria does in the Bible? No. Hardly. It's a, it's a force for judgment. It's a very negative operational thing. Yeah. So we've got to understand that there's a way in which God allows yeah. these forces in the world. And that, that ordination... Uh, May not be as personal. Yeah. yeah. That, that's You know, even in that quote that you're giving about Assyria, it says that after... Syria was uh, done f accomplishing his negative purpose there, he was going to turn around and destroy them yes. for what they had done. Yeah. So it wasn't really an endorsement of their motives, of their approach. He was using them in spite of themselves. Um, yeah, I think this, this, this gets into bigger questions, like, was God on the side of David? Well, yeah. yes, but does that mean that he endorsed everything that David did? No. We know that David was not able to build the temple because he was a man of bloodshed. Mm -hmm. So there was something even about his his exploits and militarism that did not please God and and remove certain things from his from his grasp. I, when you were talking, I thought this question would be very similar to asking, uh, was God on the side of the allied powers in World War II? Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a complicated way in which we could definitely say yes. But then does that entail that the 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 bombing of civilians in Dresden and Hamburg and and Hiroshima and Nagasaki was God's will and that God was blessing that and was God on the side of Stalin and the Russians because they were part of the Allies exactly 
Yeah. Should, <laughs> it, yeah. The, the Battle of Stalingrad. If God was on the side of the Allies, they won the Battle of Stalingrad. Does that mean he was supporting Joseph Stalin, the greatest mass murder in human history? These are more complicated than, than we want to make them. And I think that we would say that, broadly speaking, God has allowed and providentially facilitated the rebirth and survival of the Jewish nation. Let's zoom in on that and ask how and why, or why, really. Why do we feel, as Christians, why do we feel that God has allowed this to happen? And this, we've discussed this in the broadcast a couple weeks ago, as well as in a meeting in a Sunday service a couple weeks ago. But what's the passage? Is it Micah? It's Micah 2, I think. Micah 2. He says that he will gather his people together as sheep in a fold, and they will be tightly squeezed together. They will be noisy and clamorous. And we would see that the rebirth of Israel, and, and, and this is kind of, this is the complicated thing, even how I, what I'm about to say even applies to evangelicals who are all excited about this stuff. When I look at, I'm going to back up here. When I look at the story of Jesus and the disciples, or I look at the trajectory of the Gospels, I see a consistent theme. Consistently, the disciples and, and the Jews of Jesus' day are anticipating a natural kingdom. They are looking for the yoke of Rome to be broken and freedom to be regained and a Davidic dynasty to be reinstated uh, from Jerusalem over Judea. And in short, it was that expectation, it was that carnal, natural, physical expectation that blinded them to the Messiah and did not enable them to see it. And I believe it was with this intention that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. And, and you say, well, okay, so now we accept that the disciples expected a natural kingdom, but Jesus came to bring a spiritual. But then we're left to wonder, why didn't Jesus explain it more bluntly? Even in his last conversation with the disciples on the Mount of Olives, they said to him, is it at this time you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And he doesn't say, you guys are looking for the wrong kind of kingdom. He just kind of points them toward Jerusalem, which is what they would have expected, incidentally. And he says, wait until you receive power. And even that statement is kind of oblique. It's ambiguous. What kind of power were they expecting to receive? So I would argue that God used their childish expectations to get them in the right position to receive his spiritual blessing. And mm -hmm. I think that, that that is essentially the reason for Israel's rebirth. The Messiah is going to return in a visitation of his spirit and grace on the Jewish people. And the magnet of a homeland that pulled people from all over the world back to Israel has really identified the remnant and brought the remnant into the sheepfold, as Micah says, so that God can do a spiritual revival of salvation in Jesus, just as, as was promised and, and given at the time of Paul and the apostles. In the same way, I believe that these Christians are kind of confused. Their eschatology is all over the map, and I would say completely off. Um, but nonetheless, I believe God is using their zeal without knowledge, their childish excitement and anticipation. He's still using it for his purpose. But I don't think Scripture or the Lord is endorsing their exact view of the kingdom or of Israel or of the, of the eschaton, uh, broadly speaking. 
Yeah, it seems like in your example of Jesus referring to the disciples and, and not telling them, no, you guys have it all wrong again, which he did have to do a lot. You have to ask, well, what was right about their expectations? Mm. Why is Jesus not categorically slamming the door on them? Well, well there, there is a lot that's right mm. about it. Yeah. The, their expectations of the kingdom, it means they were thinking in corporate terms, they weren't yes. thinking individually. They right. were thinking that this is going to be a, a, a corporate thing. This is going to be a movement. This is going to be like the people of Israel that God has called out and that are separate from the world and that are not like other peoples and that are able to be uh, autonomous in a sense, that are going to be separated and, and consecrated for God's purpose on the earth. There's going to be a sense of destiny in it. There's going to be a sense of, of mission and purpose to be a light to the world. And Amen. All of these things that are, that are in their hearts that are tied to their kind of physical kingdom expectations are right. Yes. I think I think he's endorsing that. He, he's working with that and saying, okay, but you guys are still thinking carnally, yeah. but you're about to have an encounter with the Spirit that is going to transform your viewpoint Praise of God. where all those things are supposed to be pointing yeah. ultimately. Yeah. I mean, this is the shift from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. This yes. is huge. Yes. But all of that Old Testament uh, thinking, all of that Old Testament uh, preparation, we may say, that yes. God was doing in all, that, that are called in the book of Hebrews and Colossians and elsewhere, the types or the shadows or, yes. or the the prototype or antitypes of things to come, Amen. you know, all these things that are happening uh, in the Old Testament are for a purpose. They're all pointing to something. And these guys are situated at the cusp of the big turn. Amen. And Jesus is not saying throw away everything that happened before that would lead you in this direction, that would frame your mind as, as a Jew looking for the yes. Messiah, looking for the kingdom, looking for, looking for your religion and your, and your faith to be real, yes. to be realized, to have real yeah. effect on every part of your life. Yeah. Just like uh, we would think of a revolution, Yes. you know, changing yes. everything about the, the way people live. Yeah. He loves that. Yes. He's been cultivating that for millennia. Amen. They just have no concept yet of the kind of power that is going to be invested in them to change people's hearts. Amen. You know, to live that entire kingdom concept in Amen. a spiritual dimension that has no borders. Amen. That has no swords. Amen. You know, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said, if it were, my servants would fight. Yes. So he, he was so explicit that this isn't going to be the way it's going to happen. Amen. And then look what happens. Yes. When that power comes upon them, yeah. you know, look at the history of the church. Yeah. You know, Hagee has his comment about uh, there about it's time for America to roll up their sleeves and wipe Tehran off the map for what they did to Israel. Now, you know, there is there is that justice thing inside of every one of us that wants to say, yeah. <laughs> I, I admit it, but at the same time, you know, what, what, what do we do with passages like, though we live in the world, this is Paul, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. Hmm. Our weapons are not carnal, yeah. but they're mighty in God. What do we do with Jesus saying, if it, my kingdom's not of this world, if it were, my servants would fight. And what do we do with the history? Because would we not have been justified and someone standing up on the day of Pentecost and saying, it is time for the, for the new Christian faith to rise up 
roll up its sleeves and wipe Rome off the map for what they just did to the Messiah. Yeah. And we say, many Christians will respond to that today and say, well, Jesus, it had to happen right. to Jesus so that prophecy could be fulfilled, so that salvation could come through a perfect sacrifice, so on and so forth. So that much is allowed. But okay, fast forward yeah. to what's happening when Stephen is yeah. being killed. Or James, for that matter, or whatever. Paul, would there should, shouldn't we see a cry in the New Testament or in any early church records for some, you know, nation to rise up and wipe Rome off the map, or or wipe the the Jewish people, for that matter, the the religious Jews that were that were stoning Stephen or or such, to wipe them off the map? This is not the response that we see. No. no. Instead, in a sense, we see God using these very things, yeah. like the death of Stephen. Something happens in that to the young man standing there holding their coats that is framing something in his mind that we can only presume comes to fruition when he meets the Lord Jesus himself. Something is, there's a different type of witness that's going forward that would actually be shortchanged if some revolt were to have stepped in and right. rescued Stephen or, right. you know, and so we just don't see it. Yeah. We don't see it in the historical record. We don't see it in the instructions of our Lord Jesus. We don't see it in the instructions of the apostles who came after him. No. We just don't see it. Yeah, it's hard to hear the ministry of reconciliation when you hear words like, wipe them off the map. And yes, I think in terms of the angelic Elohim, the, the justice of God, there is a resonance that we all can identify with, that when there when, when there is evil, when there is murder, when there is uh, malice, there is some relief or there is some satisfaction in the yep. belief that it should be punished, that it should receive its just reward. I pray that the government of Iran collapses. I don't, I don't want that to continue. People are suffering under that system. But again, to make the church the agency of wrath is to make it switch places with Caesar. And yep. Now, now, who who is occupying the role of the agency of mercy that Paul said we were supposed to have the of reconciliation, beseeching men? It's just it's a little bit shocking, honestly. Well, I think that's key. There is that is to recognize that you really can't do both. Yeah, you know, and yeah. I, I think that believers tend to look at a figure in the Old Testament like David, for example, and they see somebody who is loving and compassionate and and writes the Psalms and all these things, and yet you know, rolls up his sleeves when it comes to Goliath and the Philistines and all of that. And, yeah. and we want to, we want to kind of see this hybrid thing happen and, yeah. and say, that's God. And, and right. in a sense, we know God used David. Yeah. We also know it was not his plan. Right. The scriptures are very explicit that it was an acquiescence from God, right. that God nonetheless worked through and allowed for and, and used to accomplish his purpose, but it was all still pointing towards a more perfect way. Amen. And the agency of mercy is, is, is very different. You know, I love the testimony from one of our brothers here who is, um, who was a captain in the air force and he flew in the operation Iraqi freedom. And, um, he was an F 16 pilot and he was a devout believer before he began that, uh, tour of duty. And um, he he viewed his he says that he viewed his 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 deployment to Iraq. That's Texan for Iraq, by the way. Iraq. Uh, he viewed his deployment there as an incredible evangelism opportunity. 
that he was going to be interacting with the local people who surely needed Jesus, and he was going to be sharing the gospel with them. So he would fly bombing missions at night over Baghdad, and then during the day, he would go around to the local villages and try to win the, the Iraqis to Christ. And he said he realized that they had a hard time receiving his message of peace and that God loves you, and I do too, when he was killing their children and grandchildren yeah. in Iraq at night, in, the, in Baghdad at night, and they knew that. Yeah. He said, I, I realized I was wearing an F-16 and telling them, I love you, mm. you know, and that there was this inherent contradiction. How can we go and, and make disciples of all nations, yeah. not just some nations, if we're taking sides on a, on a conflict like this? Yeah. Uh, it, 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 I think it all goes to the fact that there's no reality of the Pentecost kingdom in the church today. There's no power. The evangelical church has reduced its beliefs down to creeds and ideas about God, even conceptual beliefs about God. There's no vibrancy in the church. There's no corporate witness in the church. There's no separate identity. There's little mission besides a certain kind of watered-down evangelism. And so the spiritual reality that was vibrant and manifest at Pentecost is gone. Yeah. And so what have Christians returned to but the old shadow and shapes that preceded it. They're really living in a kind of Old Testament Christianity. And it's sad. It's, it's really sad because you, you could see how that false viewpoint, the idea that, that the Lord lives in physical Jerusalem, I mean, that is so contradictory to Scripture. Jesus told the woman at the well, the hour is coming and now is mm -hmm. when the true worshipers will worship neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem. But the Father is seeking those who will worship in spirit and truth. Paul says in Galatians that Jerusalem had come to correspond to Hagar. Present day Jerusalem. Present day says. Jerusalem had come to correspond to Hagar in Arabia. And, 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 and he's still thinking that God is somehow inhabiting physical Jerusalem. God is inhabiting the church, which is Zion. The Jerusalem from above that is the mother of us all, which Paul spoke of, and which Revelations 21 re references. But it's, it's shocking that as, as we go to this dead, spiritless Christianity, and we give them the, the hype and David stories of the Old Testament, they're getting all hot and bothered and ready to go out and get them. And, and yet God's real house, God's real city, lies in ruins. Her gates are burned with fire. Her, her marriages, her families, her congregations are, are a wreckage. And, and everybody's getting all excited about bombs and fighter pilots and whatnot. It just, it must grieve the Lord. So to recap, I would just say to the question, we believe God has a purpose for Israel's natural rebirth. And we believe that purpose is grace and salvation to draw out of the nations those whose hearts burn for the other country. But God is going to give them not what they sought, which was a nationalistic answer. He's going to give them what they need, which is the kingdom of God through Christ. That's why Israel exists. And we believe that providentially, God is favoring the efforts of the IDF, but that doesn't mean he sanctions everything they do. And we believe that in the scales of justice, 
what the IDF is doing appears much more just and very justified in response to the horrid injustice of what Hamas did. So praise God for that. But that doesn't mean that God is for the IDF in the sense that he is taking any pleasure in the death of the wicked or that he is taking any pleasure in the in violence and murder and all of these things that were supposed to be wiped away in Christ. He, he came not to take life, but to give life. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. So we don't believe that the Lord takes pleasure in slaughter, in war, even when it is politically necessary, even when he is allowing it to happen for a higher purpose, it's still a travesty. It's still a horror and a spectacle. And anyone who's lived in it would tell you that. It's not something that if, if, if human conscience can be smitten and crushed by the atrocity of war, how much more the God who is love. And we don't think that he takes pleasure in that. We're not saying that Israel shouldn't respond. They don't, they're not living by the light that God has given us in Christ. But we are saying the Christians, while they should be supporting Israel, blessing Israel, praying for Israel, they have confused the two kingdoms. They don't see that there is a kingdom of this world and there is a kingdom of God. They just see that the kingdom of this world is the kingdom of God. And that's how all manner of confusion and horror has taken place in the, in, the, in, in, in the past, whether the Crusades or other religious wars, when people could not see what Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would take up swords and fight. But my kingdom is from another place. They don't see that. So they don't, they're interpreting prophecy through the lens, lens of their natural framework. They're, they're, they're interpreting the whole world, everything that's happening through this natural lens. And God may use it. He may use it in the evangelicals who are clueless. And he may use it, and I, I believe he is using it, to draw Israel to a place where they can find grace at just the right time. But I believe that while I admire Hagee's efforts, and I admire much of what he's accomplished, I think that what he's teaching is a travesty of confusion and falsehood. And to be fair to to him and and evangelicals like him who are pro-Israel and want to do something, you know, there is a lot of scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, that as he quoted some of it, you know, uh, this is my people forever and and so on and so forth. Yes. My name will always be there and. You know, you see people saying God doesn't take his promises back. And it does require nuance. It does. To understand that those things can all still be true. Yes. But that they are fulfilled in a spiritual reality. Yes. And, and ultimately, all of this is going to be fulfilled in spiritual realities that are not shadows of, of the physical world. Yeah. If we were to take Jesus's rendition of things like what the true bread is and yeah. so forth, then it is the physical world that is a shadow and a copy of the reality of spiritual things. Amen. All that we see, all that was made, uh, is it the writer of Hebrews who says it was all made from that which was invisible? Invisible, yeah. So the ground of reality is spiritual, invisible things. Amen. All the rest of this stuff that seems real to yeah. us is is a shadow yeah. that all came from something else that's more real. And, you know, there are temporary purposes for these things that God has allowed. 
Um, even the, this is helpful, I think, to, to think of the concept of justice itself. To ask yourself, will there be justice in heaven? Yeah. You know, in, in that eternal glory and, and bliss, will there be justice operating in heaven? Well, the answer, of course, is no. Yeah. It's not justice itself reflects the division between what God is and what he isn't. Yeah. And so where God is, when the scripture tells us God is love, yeah. if that's his essence, then mercy triumphs over judgment. The love is not going to be an, an agent of justice. No. You know, but justice may be a, a, something necessary for the separation between the good and the evil. But in yeah. the world where everything is perfect and everything is in God and everything is in the spirit and everything is love, there need not be justice. Amen. And so that that's the sense in which believers, I think, have to understand which realm are we aiming to ultimately be a part of? Amen. And what is, the, what is the dispensation that God would give in these days, now that the Holy Spirit has been given? Yeah. What is the function of His redeemed church in the world? Yeah. And here again, it requires nuance because it does not mean that we reject the right of governments to defend themselves, of people to defend themselves, so on and so forth. There's a, there's a way in which that still exists yes. and that God still allows it. Yes. But it is actually unnecessary within his kingdom of redeemed, converted people. And I agree. I mean, it's like you look at the love that I see in evangelicals, even like these who, who we were listening to, the fervor, what brought them there. I believe this is, in a sense, this is God. It's just misguided. And it's what Paul said about the Jews of his day. They have, I testify, that they have a zeal for God. Yeah. But it is without knowledge. Yeah. And and I even think that God uses that confused zeal in his patient forbearance. He uses the confusion and the zeal of evangelicals who are very excited a little bit about the wrong thing, but they're very excited and they're very supportive. I love that. I do not agree with Christians who, who reject Israel. We do not believe in replacement theology. And, and we don't either believe in dispensationalism. We believe that God has an eternal purpose for Israel's natural rebirth. And that eternal purpose is salvation by grace through Christ. It is not because there's going to be some new kingdom that replaces the spiritual with a return to the natural. That is absurd. But it is going to be because God brings the sheep into a fold and allows a quick work to unfold. So to speak. Can I read that from Micah? Yeah, absolutely. We've quoted it loosely a few times, but he says, this is Micah 2 and 12. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. <laughs> uh, and I think that one translation says there will be much noise because there's so many people. <laughs> yeah. The one who breaks open the way will go before them. That's the breach maker. They will break out through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. So that's what we're referring to when we say that the function of natural Israel is to be the sheepfold. Yes. God has got a place that those sheep feel like is home. Amen. And that, that homing instinct in them Amen. that has not been buried by the centuries, but is in their it's in their veins, it's in their heritage, it's Amen. in their 
grandparents and great grandparents, there's something inside of, of his people, the Jewish people, yes. that feels like there is a, there's a homeland. Amen. You know, and, and yet we're told in the book to the Hebrews, yes. you know, that if all these who were seeking a homeland, you know, that they could have they could have gone back, but they were seeking a better country, they were seeking a homeland, you know, and that God saw it. Yeah. But the whole point of that chapter eleven is to say they saw it from afar off, and they welcomed it, and they embraced it. They were strangers. They were reaching for something that had not yet happened. Yeah. And that something was the promise, Yes, which Jesus refers to as the coming of the Holy Spirit. Yes. Wait until you receive the promise. Amen. There are many promises from God throughout the Bible, and it can just mean something that God said is going to happen. It's going to be good, um, usually. <laughs> yes. But the promise is that the, the Comforter would come, that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, would inhabit His people. Amen. That he would, there would be a new covenant, not like the old one, that God would write it on their hearts. Amen. This is the huge watershed moment yeah. that when the promise would come. And they had not yet received it. And in that sense, <laughs> there remains a rest for the people of God, yes. as he says. There is, there is yet something. If Joshua had given them rest, you know, then it would not say again through right. David, there remains a rest for the people of God. So he's right. saying even the physical promised land right. is a type and a shadow yes. of what God really wants to bring them into. Yes. But that thing in those Israelites that have zeal without knowledge that brings them back to the to the shadow. Yes. They come to the shadow that they may find the substance. Amen. That's a, that's hope. Yeah. And we also believe that God has endowed the Jewish family with remarkable gifts that are going to be pivotal in helping the church become the restored full expression of, yeah. of, God, of what God has destined at the end time. So we see what Paul is saying there in Romans 11, if their severance was mercy for the Gentiles, salvation, then their grafting back in will be life from the dead. When they start coming back, they're going to bring gifts to the church, both gifts of perspective, but also gifts among the, the Jewish people that are going to help bring that Revival, that life from the dead, end time revival that is going to usher in the Lord's return. And we've already been tasting of that in our own congregation. Amen. Praise God. Amen. We've had so many Jewish people from the very beginning Amen. Uh, when we started in New York and now many Israeli believers today I, that are part of us and I, who came to faith in, in our congregation. But And I was thinking of some of them, you know, I'm going to say most, but it's probably all. I just can't think right this minute if that's true to say all, but I think it's all of our Israeli brothers and sisters in our congregation would not exist yeah. if their ancestors who were not Christians, not even practicing Jews in right. most cases, right. had not felt that something that made them get up and leave Europe when it was not popular before the Nazi regime and go to Palestine and make something out of the swamps and the deserts there. So Amen. there was something in their hearts. A and spiritual now, call. And now their descendants yeah. are coming to faith in Christ. Yes. You know, yes. and you just, I don't know. Their ancestors, it could be said, these died in faith without receiving yeah. what was promised, that they should not be made perfect without us. There was some homing instinct yeah. in there that was eventually leading to Christ. They looked for a city who has foundations, yeah. whose builder and maker is God. And it says, you will not have finished going through the cities of Israel when the Son of Man returns. You know, and it talks in Romans about he's going to do a quick work. Yeah. All of this is facilitated by the sheep pen. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> and by the sheepfold. Amen. Where they're gathered together and there's a lot of noise. Amen. There's still a lot of noise there. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> but we wonderful. believe God is using 
even these things, even the difficulty and the trials of these things that are happening in Israel right now, that God is going to be working through hearts. Yeah. You know, the times of war, there are times of tragedy. We pray for peace. Um, we don't pray for for these things, but we also believe that just as the pain in labor is a sign of contractions of a good thing that yes. is coming to birth, that the pain of some of this can also be part of God's purpose. Amen. Amen.